Hello, basketball world. It's Eric Gormley from PlaySite. Welcome to The Edge. Each week, we'll be bringing you interviews from the brightest minds and most interesting people in hoops, breaking down their careers, jobs, stories, and ultimately finding out what gives them the edge each time their team steps out onto the court. We hope you enjoy a behind-the-scenes look into each one of our guests. Let's get to the interview. Welcome to The Edge podcast. I'm Eric Gormley, and on this episode, we spoke to Johnny Carpenter, the Director of Player Personnel for the University of Virginia men's basketball team. We chatted about Johnny's role on the UVA basketball staff, what technology they use as a team, and how video has evolved over the years in basketball. Johnny tells a great story about taking a chance, writing a handwritten note to Rick Carlisle, head coach of the Dallas Mavericks, and eventually working for Rick a year later. We also touched on Johnny's experience working with Slovakia's under-18 team in Macedonia, and of course, he gave us an inside look into Virginia's magical national championship run last year. Let's get to the interview. Uh, welcome to the Edge podcast. Today's guest, uh, we have Johnny Carpenter, the Director of Player Personnel for the University of Virginia men's basketball team. Johnny, how are you doing? Doing well, Eric. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Where are you? Uh, where are you located right now during uh, the lockdown? I'm actually right now in my roommate's room. So my twin brother Mikey, he's actually kind of taken over the living room area with a lot of Zoom calls. So our whole house has gotten about three different Zoom calls going on almost simultaneously. So this is probably the last quiet spot. <laughs> and are you guys down in Charlottesville right now? Yeah. So right now we're in Charlottesville. So we got to see our family a little bit, um, kind of just before the lockdown measures went into effect. And ever since then, I've been on lockdown here. States should open up, they say, or at least start taking back some of the restrictions this Friday. And so we're going to see how it goes from there. Yeah, I'd imagine, uh, you know, you guys being a pretty big college town that it's been quiet with uh, all the kids, you know, off, off of campus. Yeah, it's been completely different. I mean, you can literally walk down the middle of the road on the main drag in a town and there's no one here, um, especially early on. As things started, kind of people have gotten used to the fast food and carry out options. So that's obviously added a little bit more traffic, but it's kind of cool in a weird way to see everybody walking. Um, but it's also a lot different. It's good if you need to get to the arena quickly. Yeah. Um, important question. Do you have a hoop at home where you've been, you know, keeping your jumper uh, pretty clean? The only thing I have is one of those mini baskets. So I always, I've been practicing some dunks. So I'm watching the last dance and practicing my MJ dunks. That's uh man, that, that's a perfect segue. I was going to ask. So episode seven and eight aired last night. I'm sure you were watching just like I was. Give me your thoughts just on the whole series. And then, you know, specifically the last two episodes last night. Phenomenal series. Just the content itself is amazing, but the way they go back and they don't just tell the story of the 97, 98 season, but seeing MJ all the way is just really impressive how they've done that. It's been able to kind of show the generation that didn't get to have any MJ. I was a young kid. I was born in 91. So I was, what, six, seven, eight during that time. So it's been really cool to see from after the perspective I'm in now where it's my career, right, and kind of able to study MJ. I was probably like, – I remember in the first video they showed a little kid at a game like, I'm here to see Michael Jordan. That's what me and my brothers were like. So – it was kind of really amazing to see how the documentaries have been put together, all the stories from the Rodman stuff, which was just wild. I don't know how that would have flown in today's social media age. Also how competitive MJ is, his drive, 
and just how different the game. The game's changed so much. Um, so that's been also cool to see. And w- one of the funniest things I thought about the two episodes last night was, uh, you know, him changing numbers between um, back-to-back games. Like, I, I just don't see that flying in this day, you know, of, of basketball. Yeah, that was interesting. I, I think I had a card of his back when everyone used to collect those sports because I still have my binder. It's probably worthless now. Um, but one of them had the 45 jersey games and then he switched back to 23 so that reminded me of my childhood a bit but yeah that's just interesting he was such so competitive ultra competitor right there some of the stories of Scott Burrell I think BJ Armstrong um, I I forget the name of the Wizards rookie player but you know where he made up the story about the guy talking trash like you know just an ultra level of competitiveness that you know is is rare today that, that you see in today's game for sure, you think of Kobe, and Kobe learned, obviously, and a lot from MJ. So that was also cool a couple of weeks ago to see the Kobe shout out there um, in the documentary. But, yeah, he was so competitive, and that's almost, in some ways, he looked and created stories for himself to push that competitiveness and take himself to another level. Like, if there wasn't fuel to the fire, you even think of his Hall of Fame speech, you think that the most decorated NBA athlete would have the most kind loving hall of fame speech no regrets but it was almost a call out list of everybody who ever slighted him in one way i'm like like what's left to compete but yeah yeah he's awesome. one of a kind he's, he's definitely one of a kind um so i want to get a little into your journey into basketball where you started so i know i know you started as a, a team manager for you at for uva um take us back you know how everything got started um for the listeners to, to kind of get a, a sense of you know where, where it all began yeah, so sports was a huge part of my life growing up. And then when I came to a big university, such as the University of Virginia, I didn't know what those options were going to be like. I didn't really have high, high level interest in basketball from colleges to play at the next level. So I came to UVA to kind of pursue more academics, but how could I get involved in sports was always a big thing, big question. So as I mentioned earlier, I have a twin brother and probably two weeks before move-in day, So this is August 2009. It's amazing how fast the time flies. He and I are talking and he was kind of asking me the same question. What are you going to do without sports? And I honestly said to him, I don't know from my mouth to God's ears or whatever, but um, I said, how cool would it be to be a student manager? I bet not many people want to have that experience, wiping up sweat, rebounding, but that's just something that I'd love to be a part of, you know? And about literally two weeks later, first week of, on campus at Virginia, there's a little table tent with advertisements at the dining hall, men's basketball needs managers. And I was like, ah, thank you. So I uh, was able to just apply. And back then, I think we probably had 12 people. Now it's probably about 40 people every year seem to reach out, but was able to apply. I was one of the ones fortunate enough to be selected. And that's where I kind of got to see that I always want to be around in sports. I thought teaching was more of my path. And I didn't think you could get into coaching unless you had either a family member who was an elite coach or you had elite playing experience, but to be able to see how you could work your way up and there's managers that go on or video coordinators that go on to be head coaches of the NBA, those kind of people start inspiring you a bit and you start to see that there isn't just one path to that type of career, you know? So I ended up becoming a student manager um, for Coach Bennett. That was his first year, so 2009 to 2010. And it's been amazing to see how the program's grown over all that time. And during that time, I was just kind of helping out in practice any way I could, 
was always rebounding for players and things like that. Wanted to learn as much as I possibly could. Had a little exposure to some of the video stuff. As I know we're going to talk about that a bit later. But it wasn't until my GA ship with the women's team. So that was the 2013-14 season where I kind of got to get more on the real coaching side because there's always kind of a healthy degree of separation when you are a student manager. Relationships with players and staff change a little bit as you work your way up to a GA ship. After that GA ship, which I was exposed to a ton of video breakdowns and kind of the, how you break down opponent scouting, the scout schedule, the chop schedule, all those different types of aspects, how to start recruiting, evaluating recruiting, uh, recruiting film, things like that. So after that was fortunate enough, crazy story, which we, I don't know if you want to get into now or later, but it's fortunate. Yeah, sure. Let's, yeah. let's get into it. Yeah. So as people in this industry know, getting jobs is really hard and you got to keep applying. I think my first year, so that I was applying for jobs. So 2012 to 2013 was my fourth year at UVA. So during that year, I applied to 94 jobs. I think I heard back from two, you know, and they were probably favors just, hey, um, but that, and like, give Johnny a buzz. Like, this is my guy, right? <laughs> but you know, you're not going to get it. So when you see jobs, basically, they know who they're going to hire. They just have to post and you apply like everybody else. So I didn't know what I was going to do. And then one of my friends who's on the women's basketball team, she was talking about coming back for her fifth year and doing this sports management program. And I said, where? <laughs> she said, Virginia. And I was like, what? So then I kind of got wind of that. And then it turned out our women's team needed a grad assistant, someone who could play against the girls in practice and also who wanted to be a coach and learn from Coach Boyle. So it kind of fit perfectly. So I ended up doing that. And then during that time, um, Rick Carlisle, head coach of the Mavericks, UVA alum, he spoke at the fall graduation ceremony. And I remember our women's practice had just ended. So I went into the stands and just started kind of taking notes and just listening to what he had to say. And it was some awesome, awesome words of wisdom. And from there, I kind of had this weird feeling like, reach out to him, reach out to him somehow. I didn't really have any of his contact info or anything like that. So just wrote him a letter talking about his speech, how it resonated with me, a little bit of an introduction to myself. I didn't ask him for anything, just kind of thanked him for what he had to share. And about two months later, it was Christmas Eve. I was walking out to Christmas Eve dinner with my mom and my brothers, and I get a text from a 214 number. And I was just in shock and said, Merry Christmas, Johnny. This is Coach Carlisle. Thanks for your letter. And I'm like, how does the NBA head coach have time to respond via via text like what and he just said he wanted to get together the letter meant a lot to him so we ended up connecting and developing a relationship over time um and later that summer so a few months after that it turned into a job opportunity with the Mavs so props to him for taking a chance and for being someone in such a high position shows a great humility in that he's willing to respond to letters that are literally just a note sent to him so the art of the old note, whether it's handwritten or typed, is something that I think everybody should kind of throw in their arsenal. Absolutely. And honestly, my dad tells me to write handwritten notes all the time. And that, that has stuck with me, too. But for Coach Carlisle, you know, head coach of an NBA team to get back to you like that, and then for that to transition into an actual job with the team, it's, it's an amazing story. Um, you know, while you were working with the Mavs, so what, what was it like to work for the Mavs? You're going from, you know, team manager and GA with um, a collegiate program on the men's and women's side, and then you go to the NBA game for a summer. What was that like? It was entirely different because you get to do everything. You know, 
Um, obviously, as a GA, you get to do some stuff on the court, which is awesome. But in the NBA, at that level, you're allowed to, as long as you do your responsibilities, which was chop schedule and different things like that, some administrative tasks, but you get to be on the court and learn and help out in all the rebounding drills, pa- passing, shooting, any workouts. It was all up to you. You basically got what you put in, and there was no restrictions on that. So that was kind of like, for me, it's energetic youngster. It was everything. It was a dream come true. And you, I mean, literally, I grew up with a Dirk Nowitzki action figure in my room, you know, doing the one-legged fade. And all of a sudden, I'm seeing this guy in real life every day. It was, it was mind-blowing. It was an incredible experience. And what was it like working with those guys on the court? So I know you worked quite a bit, you know, in player development with Dirk, Tyson Chandler, Rondo. What was it like working with those guys? It's just amazing how gifted they are. I compare it to when you go, I'm kind of uh, a little bit of a renaissance man, but when it comes to, like, I really enjoy plays, musicians, just people with an elite entertaining skill set, right? When you watch them, like, I remember when I saw Justin Timberlake even perform. I was blown away. I was inspired. I'm like, I just want to be half as good at one thing. This dude can sing. He can dance. He can entertain. He's literally can do it all. Fashion icon. He can literally do it all at an elite level. I'm like, can I be good at one of those things? You know, but it all takes work. Right. And you see these guys who are just elite at what they do. People say, Oh, this guy can't shoot. It's like, no, he can, he can really shoot. It's just like, that's not his role. You know what I mean? So seeing the elite work ethics, seeing guys like this is truly their profession. It is basketball all day long in terms of that's what the cutthroat nature of it. It's not kind of the last dance reminds me of it because they are literally trying to provide for their families. So that, that was really interesting. That's something that stood out to me, just how skilled, how talented, how tough those guys are. Even the end of the bench players in the NBA, like those guys will get buckets on most people. It won't even be close. Yeah, totally. Would you say that's the biggest difference, you know, you being – you've seen the college game and you've now seen the NBA game. Is the biggest difference just the level of commitment? Basketball is the only thing that those NBA guys are doing. I think that definitely plays a part of it. Shot making is just the ultimate difference maker and just feel for the game. Like when you play that long and you are around the best minds and the best athletes, and it's not about – anything of like recruiting like the coaches are literally there for basketball and they're there almost as you think of teams as like a think tank right they have all these elite basketball minds that have their specialties in different areas but they're able to generate tons of ideas and I think that helps the players and those players just have such elite IQ feel the ball moves there's so much space it's so modern you know it's compared to the NCA and also the changes that have happened since what 2003 and Kirk Goldsberry has been covering it in amazing fashion. That's a great book. I think everyone should read Sprawl Ball. If you're an NBA fan, it's qualitative and quantitative analysis of how the NBA has changed. Phenomenal read. Um, but it talks about how much the game has changed. Gameplay has changed. We talk about, oh, could MJ have done it, what he did in that era, in this era, and things like that. It's really interesting. And, and you know, I think that, that plays into some of the stuff that we're doing at PlaySite. You know, you got to work with Mark Cuban as well. I know you, you know, you said he used to pop his head into the video room where you guys were at. What type of technology did you have at the NBA level? NBA basically had their, just at their disposal, whatever they wanted. It was up to each team. Um, Colleges, because of budgets and things like that, it's a lot harder. I think colleges may only have one type of platform, whereas the NBA, it's second spectrum. 
the four second spectrum was sports view. Um, and the, I know the Mavs adopted play site after I had, I had left, but it's all about technology. Like what can you do to maximize to, all right, yeah, we have a practice or yeah, this player has a workout, but what can you do with that workout? You know, and that's where technology comes in, film comes in, recording, people breaking down, analyzing, makes misses, all that type of stuff. And then you can get into this more of the qualitative stuff of, hey, he's leaning this way on his misses or, you know, I mean, footwork into shots. And then players can start building that relationship with coaches about basketball because players care how much time you invest, right? So um, I think that's a huge part, but they had all sorts of technologies. And that's, that's one of the sentiments to your point. Um, you know, in, in many of the interviews that we've conducted, it seems that the coach-player relationship, you know, the, the players who appreciate um, how much effort the coaches put in are the ones that have the strongest bonds, and ultimately it helps them out, you know, further on in their careers. With the player-coach relationship, it's all about sweat equity. I think that's how Kenny Atkinson with the Nets uh, describes it, you know. Nobody cares how much you know unless they know how much you care. And the way you do that is by investing in players. And in the NBA, you can do that on the court, especially as a young guy like me. Like, that's how you have to gain their respect. I mean, most of those guys have forgotten more basketball than I would have ever even been exposed to at this point in my, at that point in my life, you know. So I think that's a really important aspect. Like, you have to invest in your player. And then in the NCAA, when you're an assistant coach or a head coach, you can work with guys on the court. Absolutely, that's a way to do it. But then you also have to be able to do it off the court. How can you invest in their lives off the court? I love that. I've never heard of sweat equity, but um, it, it totally makes sense. And I'm going to adopt that into, into my own life here. Um, so take me, you, you, you did the job, the, the full year with the Mavs, and then you come back to UVA, um, this time in, in a more formal role with the staff. How did you get back there? So once the 14-15 season ended, a coaching carousel basically started. So every offseason, it's where's the moves happening, right? And UVA had a string of really good years. Coach McKay got hired at Liberty, and he's been doing such a great job there now. And that brought and created movement on the Virginia staff. So there was an opening for their video coordinator spot, and I done a ton of video with Dallas. But there's also the – while you're an assistant video coordinator in the NBA, you get to be on the court, and you get to be really invested on that aspect. NCAA, you can't do that, you know? So it's a bit of a trade-off. And – just the opportunity to go back to work for coach Bennett. Cause I got to see him from the manager perspective, how special of a guy he was um, and is, and that's just something I was gravitated towards. I just kind of want to see how he could do it. The alumni aspect of it. And just the fact that I thought we were, could have been knocking on the door to a final four that year. And I kind of wanted to be a part of those guys like Malcolm Brogdon, Anthony Gill, Mike Toby. Those are some of my really close friends from my time in college. We overlapped so much. So I just wanted to kind of see if we could do that. And also just the college age group was something that gravitated me more towards college at the time. Cause I just saw myself as what am I going to be doing here? I want to try to impact and invest, you know, um, and be kind of a wiser voice, but I can't do that as a 22 year old on a staff where I'm by far and away the youngest guy on staff. So that was some, those are things that kind of gravitated me back towards college. And it was just a growing experience because you kind of lose a lot of the responsibilities that you had when you were in the NBA. So that was kind of a nice growth process. It helped reset me. You know, coaches always want to try to bounce from here to here to here. 
but sometimes you just got to be present and learn and be patient and grow your foundation. It's, I love that you make that point again, in some of the other interviews that we've conducted, people seem to be, you know, you have two avenues that you can go. And one of the resounding sentiments has been um, to choose the one, the tra- the path that's a little bit less traveled, you know, just because you can get to the MBA level doesn't mean that you're only going to be stuck there and you have to bounce around in the MBA. People go down to the G league, they go back to college. And I think that, you know, is something that, you know, has worked out for you really well. Um, obviously, you know, you're, we're talking about, you get, you were mentioning in, in 2014, 2015, you were building the foundation to where the program's at now, which is, you know, a top five program year in and year out. Talk a little bit about, you know, the last couple of years, really from being, you know, one of the top programs, you lose to a 16 seed. The following year, you come and win the national championship and play in some of the best games that I've ever seen in the March Madness tournament. Um, how has the past few years, just, just take me through that. It's unbelievable to be sitting here now thinking that over the past three years, we've had the UMBC loss, a NAS championship, and now the tournament's canceled at this point, right? It's just wild to think of how fast it's all flown by. But it, I can't even describe the whole 17-18 season because in an ironic way, we started off that season unranked. They took us out of the rankings because they thought we lost all of our talent. And we lost a ton of talent, but we still had a ton of talent on the roster. You go from outside the top 25 to number one in the country, right? And you're cutting down the nets in the ACC tournament championship. And then a week later, it completely flips and you're on the opposite side of history. And then for a year after that, to be a part of, honestly, when you talk about a script for a movie, it almost seems too good to be true. I feel like directors would be like, that's too cliche of an ending. Of course they lose to the 16th seed and then go on to win the title, you know? Uh, but the thing that sticks out to me the most during that time is by far and away the not to sound cliche but the actual process our staff and our players went about in handling the adversity you can't just say oh adversity happened it's going to make me better there's a point where you actively have to choose to make that adversity a turning point in your life you have to say I'm taking it and I'm, I'm actually going to do something practical with it. And that's just the practical examples from Coach Bennett all the way down through our entire staff and our roster was just incredible to see, like the amount of work guys put in individually and collectively, how the mindset shifted, how they truly learned how to confront, I mean, in a lot of ways, and especially in social media nowadays, just the embarrassment of the loss, but to kind of say, no, we don't choose to be embarrassed from it. Shame, we don't want that feeling. Like, that's not a part of it. That's what the world's telling us to feel like. Let's get rid of that. It happened. Let's learn from it. So as a staff, we threw in a different type of more spread the floor offense, a little more ball screens in there, even attempted presses at times during that season, which was new to us, but it showed growth in our players. I mean, props to them, just how hard they worked. You know, you see guys just grind relentlessly and some of them, their work ethics, like the, especially that season, Ty Jones, DeAndre Hunter, those guys were machines. I mean, absolute machines during that season in just their buildup, you know, they were ready. And I guess the true test is when you're put in the exact same spot 
it wasn't like we were playing a 15 seed. We were down even worse against the 16 seed, you know? I think yeah. what were we up, it was tied against UMBC, but then we were down against Gardner-Webb at the half, right? But yeah. we were down by 14 at one point. But instead of crumbling and falling back on last year, we were able to stay strong and just break through the second half. And when we had that second half, that's when I knew something special was going to happen. It was just like the biggest weight was lifted off our guys. Yeah, and, and you guys had three NBA draft picks on this team. And guys that probably, you know, maybe DeAndre Hunter was, was probably the only one that, um, you know, was on mock lottery drafts. And, um, you know, you had Kyle Guy and Ty Jerome. You know, obviously Ty Jerome developed into a first-round pick and Kyle Guy in the second round. Um, but, you know, the player development piece, um, I think that you guys really specialize in shows the growth of those guys over the four years to getting to that national championship. Um, along that national championship run, you know, I think two games to me stick out the Purdue game, which is probably the craziest game I think I've ever watched in the college of basketball um, landscape. What was it like being on the sidelines during that game? That game was crazy. That game was crazy. And in the first half of each of those games, I'm, cutting up the game just so that we have stuff to as a staff to address the NCAA doesn't let you show players film or anything like that but as a staff you're able to kind of discuss right um so I'm cutting them up at the half and I just couldn't believe it I mean it was like a heavyweight boxing fight where they're just clobbering just right hook left hook right hook left hook it was amazing and spent time during this kind of coronavirus quarantine period re-watching those games truly as a fan i mean it was hard to re-watch it right after because i mean you're on to the next one you know like you're in the going to the final four nope put that game behind you move on to the uh, scouting auburn right but re-watching it i was had the feeling how are we going to win this game you know when they get that offensive rebound and then the the cameras pan to the purdue bench and the purdue fans like i felt sick for them when i saw after after they missed that free throw and Oh, it was wild. I, I just can't even describe. I mean, obviously, we had the good Lord looking out for us during that time. And I'll also say that those are scenarios that – I know there was the documentary about the ACC, Unbelievable was the name of it. But scenarios such as missing free throws, and I'm not saying that Ty missed that one intentionally or unintentionally, but that's, those are things we practice, and it worked out that way, whether he meant to intentionally miss or didn't those are scenarios you practice like mommy tipping the ball back. And I mean, talk about unbelievable preparation and foresight by coach Bennett to be able to spend enough time over the course of the season to literally show guys how to miss free throws. Like that part of practice stands out to me or it immediately popped in my head when that play happened. Like they've done this before. It, it was, it's wild. So it just shows the preparation aspect of it all. But that game was crazy. The Auburn game was crazy. And then Texas Tech, too, just – and I think Texas Tech, from everything we did in that tournament run, we knew we weren't going to go out. I mean, we were up in almost all those games and ended up blowing big leads, right? But against Texas Tech, I think our guys knew – it may have been after Purdue, may have been after Gardner-Webb, who knows, and definitely after Auburn, that, they, that we are going to win this thing and that nothing is going to stop us. No matter how far we're down, we're going to keep making play after play. But it was, it was really cool to see. And to go into overtime in the national championship, it just even adds more pressure and, you know, it adds to the storybook ending. Um, what, what was it like directly after the national championship? So obviously there's a lot of pieces 
that I think about, um, you know, obviously there's the celebration, you're thinking about recruiting, you know, how quickly are you going to reach out to recruits and just check in on them. Um, I know you play a role in recruiting as well. Um, what has, you know, how has, have you seen an uptick in recruiting in, in the players that um, just show general interest since the national championship or really since you guys have been, you know, a top five program year in, year out? I think the championship went a long way to validate everything that was built. I think this world is built on perception, especially social media and, and unfortunately perception can become reality. And we had been a dominant program, top five, definitely top 10 and most probably top five team in the country going back, what, seven years prior to that. But everybody doesn't, no one cares about the regular season, you know, in terms of the fans and that kind of thing. It's like, they want that. They want the regular season championship for a week, but then they want the ACC tournament championship for a week, but then they want to win the national championship. You know what I mean? So um, that's something where once we finally won the title, also to kind of wipe away the UMBC loss, right? That was what helped validate it. You know, I think our program has always been there, but just to finally win it all was huge for just the perception for our fans. I think it was great for our fan base just to be able to do that. It was it helped unite us, the city going through a lot. It helped kind of ease some of the pain of some tough losses because going back to Chaminade, the reason they had that Maui tournament is because poor Virginia lost to Chaminade back in the day. But, yeah, so um, I think it did a lot to help validate the program or kind of the final stamp. Like, you cannot deny that Virginia can do it because there was tons of articles. They can do it during the regular season. The style of play wins in the regular season, but can they do it when it matters most? And the answer is yes. And, and obviously the NCAA tournament, you need luck, but you have to also be prepared, just like that free throw scenario. It didn't yeah. work. We didn't go in saying, hey, miss it intentionally, but it was practiced and it worked out exactly how it had been practiced. The tip out to a shot, not the Kihei amazing rundown to the Mamadi pass or pass to Mamadi to Mamadi floater, but it was still something that was prepared for. Um, but yeah, right after that title, you're in shock. It's one of those things that I think it's going to hit more the longer you're in the industry. Um, as the years go by, how special it is, how hard it is to let alone, I mean, winning a title is great, but winning a few games in the NCAA tournament, there's great coaches and great players who are unable to even do that. So there's a thankfulness aspect that I think is going to hit way later on. You're so immersed in it. I remember that when we were flying back, I had fallen asleep just because I couldn't sleep at all the night after we won. And then I woke up in a panic and I think I like knocked into the chair in front of me. I'm like reaching for my backpack, pulling out my laptop. I'm like, who's the next game? Like it was just in my DNA of just in subconscious of if you fall asleep on the plane while work on an opponent or after a game, like make sure you work on the next opponent. And everyone started laughing. They're like, no, there is no game. And I was like, oh, good. <laughs> All right, I'm going back to sleep, guys. Uh, but you also, like you said, it turns right back into recruiting mode. You have a decision when you're in that kind of lead eight, final four run. Do you go all in to that present because you don't know when that present moment's going to go? Or do you maybe split up some of the staff? Hey, who's on the grad transfer market? Who's on any recruits decommit during this time. Cause I'm, I tell you what, when you're, there's so much chaos going on around that run from just like the sheer magnitude of it. We're so isolated from it. I mean, literally there's security that keeps you 
on protected floors in your ele- in the hotel, right? You're only allowed to go on certain elevators at certain times of the day. I don't even check ESPN.com until I think maybe the night before the Auburn game, like after we put all the hay in the barn. Mm-hmm. No stone was left unturned in our opponent scouting, but you either have a chance to go all in that way or do you scout the recruit transfer market, things like that, and where film comes into play with that is breaking down game film, having that film ready for coaches. Hey, here are my thoughts on this guy. Here's so-and-so's thoughts on this guy, kind of scouring that. So it, the, unfortunately, the work aspect, you have to flip that page really quickly because we ended up having a recruiting visit that following weekend. Mm. Mm. And, and you touched on technology and scouting. I know you guys use quite a bit um, in your practice facilities um, and arena. What types of tech do you use and, and how are you using it? I, gotta throw, I wish I could throw in my PlaySite plug right now. <laughs> um, but honestly, PlaySite's a phenomenal product. I know Softball at Virginia is signing up with PlaySite. Right now we use, obviously, sports code to break the games down. We've been using DB Sport rewind for a few years prior to our relationship um so we've been using dv sport rewind to actually live stream practice pretty much i know huddle now that they acquired sports code they've kind of created a more foolproof plan of live streaming um the practices from the cameras to a laptop all that stuff so we integrate film for a quick correction why wait a full 24 hours when you can literally correct and instruct with film right there, you know, and the players, there's an iPad there that they can pick up and they can go through the clips and just so that they can see. And so much of learning is visual right now. There's experiential learning during practice, but then for them to also step back and say, you know, I don't fully understand what's going on with what coach means here. Can I see it? So they are experiencing and then they're visually learning it from the film. I think it's huge. Um, and then we got also tons of different shot tracking technologies from home court, Noah's Ark, shot tracker. We've got all the kind of coach, Ben's a big gadget coach. So he, we have all the tools for any player to come in and if they want to put their work in, they're able to monitor, track, log, view breakdowns of their work. And, I, and you know, I think as a recruit, looking at that, looking at the level of technology that you guys have invested to in your facilities, I mean, that's really appealing. If I can come in, you know, work out, track all of my shots, get my stats after I've done that, I mean, that is an MBA level experience. And I think that's something that you guys on the player development aspect really specialize in as well. For sure. And that's something that Coach Bennett's big on. He always tells our, our play, current players, former players that are pursuing pro careers and even the recruits that come in, it's not about making it. It's about lasting and how you last in anything in life, especially this career that is basketball, you have to build a foundation. And if you come here, you are going to have every tool at your disposal, but it ultimately is up to you. Are you going to be the one to take advantage of all the different things around you to maximize your potential and grow that base? Coach McKay used to always say, it's almost like putting, deposit in the bank but a little bit of deposit over time all of a sudden you've got a lot right but any day you don't put that deposit in you're not building your foundation so we we try to bring those types of kids that have chips on their shoulder that want to work we're big into the highly competitive and intrinsically motivated types of kids so it's a culture of kind of blue collar work ethic 
Yeah. Um, I want to talk about, you know, your time. Uh, I, you've done the coaching at the NBA. You've done the coaching um, with UVA. I want to talk about your time assisting with Slovakia's under 18 and under 16 men's uh, national teams sure. and how you got involved with that. I remember getting some, um, some funny calls at, late at night from you when we were talking about technology and whatnot. And I was like, where are you right now? And you were like, oh, I, I'm, I, I, mean, I think you told me you were in Montenegro at the time. Um, but t- take us through how you got involved with that and what that experience has been like coaching on the international FIBA level. Yeah, so part of the experience of the 17-18 season that kind of opened my mind is like, well, in this role that you're in, there are limitations. And you're not just through osmosis. Yeah, you're going to learn. But what about the practical aspect? What about the experiential learning? You talk about the 10,000-hour theory. You have to practice your craft too. So I can't just sit here and say, what am I going to do with myself? Like, oh, I'm not allowed to do this. No, you have to find a way, a legal way to better yourself and to add those skills. I mean, we only got one life to live, so live it to the most, right? So I started applying. I'm not even applying. It was was honestly kind of sad. It it felt like the job process all over again where you're literally emailing basketball federation after basketball federation and just either don't hear back or it's a no or they're like, who are you, right? But uh, um, so or language barriers, things like that. I mean, that kind of helps, that cuts away a lot of countries if there's language barriers for it. So end up being linked up with the Slovakian Basketball Federation. And I was like, this is gonna be fun. Either, just such a cool experience. So I started out with the U18s two summers ago. And then I got to do a little bit of the U16 training camp at that time. And then the following summer, I did the U16 age group. And it was unbelievable experience just to actually practice being a coach and apply what I'm learning and there's scenarios that it's are hard to replicate so being able to talk to a team whether they fully understand you or not most of the kids knew English a good amount but their head coach is he's yelling at them and talking to them in Slovakian right it's like Johnny your turn and he's investing in me and just like hey what do you see now you're getting this experience where you're not biased from what your head coach has said. You might be repeating, you might be contradicting. <laughs> so it was kind of like the fair balance, but it was just such an awesome experience to be able to coach and travel and also see how basketball is a vessel that you're able to impact lives. And that's ultimately what it comes down to, whether you're in the States, whether you're all the way in Pezinok, Slovakia and training camp, it's the game that people love and you're able to bond over this basketball and be able to share. And it's, it's unbelievable. It's just amazing. It shows the transcendent nature of sports and just how you can truly be impactful all over, even if you don't know the the language all that well. So that's been an awesome experience, really fun. And also able to kind of see international basketball, you're able to kind of stay ahead of the curb. It almost seems like the NBA is, few years ahead of the NCA when it comes to strategy spacing things like that but it seems like Europe the spacing and off-ball movement stuff might even be one or two years ahead of where the NBA is at so it's really interesting um and you know you get to be an assistant coach at that level obviously you're on the bench now are you ultimately building towards is the goal to be a head coach is that what you're, you're going towards yeah I think the way I work is if I want to be a head coach one day, whether it's college, whether it's MBA, I, 
I'd love to have that opportunity. So that's how, how hard I work is for something like that. But I also ultimately know that my plans, I mean, to be able to, to do what I've done over this time, none of this, I didn't think any of this was possible. You know, like I thought I was going to try to walk on to UVA's men's basketball team from a manager spot. And I thought that's was what my story was going to be. And then for a couple, I go to women's basketball, then I go to the Mavs and then I come back and my name's on a locker. Right. And it's to be on a staff position. And I'm like, this is way better than any of my terrible dreams were, you know what I mean? My expectations versus what ends up happening. So I've kind of learned to, and coach Bennett's the best teacher at this, just instead of hold things like this, either hold them like this or just don't hold them at all. Work as hard as you can, but be free to experience failure. Cause that's ultimately where you grow. Be free to experience joy, you know, but just stay present and kind of just let the cards fall as they fall, but work as if it depends on, on you in a way. Absolutely. It's great advice. And, you know, it's, it seems like you, you've been there with coach Bennett from the start. So, you know, having that experience of coming in with a coach um, and him being able to coach you throughout your, your whole career there, you know, that's special. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, in the current climate, you know, obviously we're, we're going through, um, you know, COVID-19, what that's been like, you know, from a recruiting sense, how you guys have been still communicating with your players, checking in on them. I know you guys have a couple international guys as well, so it's probably not as easy. What has it been like for you? Yeah, these times have just been unprecedented. And pretty much four days after the AC tournament and NCAA tournament were canceled, I think it was on a Thursday is when it all happened. Everybody basically had to kind of much, pretty much evacuate from campus more or less um, as everything shut down and then it just got more strict with all the lockdown. So most of our guys were able to go home. A couple of our international guys, because of hot spots in terms of the COVID outbreaks, they weren't allowed to go home. So they're kind of still in town here. Um, and we're just, it forces you to kind of communicate in a different way, you know, Zoom meetings like we're doing right now have become huge, which I'd invested in Zoom before this mm-hmm. or the foresight to do that. But um, texting with guys, FaceTiming, FaceTime is big with the current generation. I think that's probably their favorite form of communication. If you have that type of bond with them for recruiting, it's shifted the landscape a lot right now, I guess, during this period of time, we would, there would be AAU events right on different weekends, things like that open periods for evals, but now it's almost like, how can you be creative? How can you be different? I mean, everyone's going through uh, the two hour long FaceTime campus tour look at the campus on the phones sure that might be good but a lot of kids might think that's kind of overdose you know i'd rather rather just look through a virtual tour just show me like a really good video but you've got to generate content content is king during this especially with this generation through instagram and everything like that you've got to find ways to resonate with your recruits graphics are huge so any type of personalized graphic for some of your top guys is always big but for coaches to evaluate comes down to film can you acquire film can you have high school games ready previous international games so that's where companies like synergy sports hoop one all those companies are in in stats also an up-and-comer those companies are huge with terms of film acquisition and i know baller tv's got their own channels and all that stuff so anywhere place where you can download film and evaluate it's changed. It, it kind of feels in some ways almost like a 
little bit of an NBA front office in terms of, hey, these are the games, go see these kids live, but then you're also going to have to break down a bunch of games and have your analysis ready, forces staffs to communicate in a, be- in, in a better way because right now you don't get that face-to-face interaction anymore. So Zoom calls are huge for recruits, for coaching staffs, and even for staying in touch with your team. Definitely. And since, you know, since the, the tournament got cut short, you guys are technically still the national champs. Is that uh, correct? I think so. I, I don't know if we get another ring or anything like that or another trophy, but um, yeah, the reigning, the two-year reign, hopefully we can make it a three-year reign at this point next year. I will say you guys got a, a really good looking team coming in next year. Um, and, and it certainly excited to, to watch you guys um, on a national stage. I know you just announced a game here. Uh, in New York at Madison Square Garden in November. Pumped up about oh, that. Man, um, I was, when you texted me, I said, uh-oh. I, said, I, I don't even know about that one. I said, that's going to be a big one. I love our games against Villanova. 15-16 here was a great one. 16-17 in, I think, is it Wells Fargo? Is that the name yeah, of the uh, yeah. arena? That was an incredible game. Devin Chenzo's tipping at the buzzer. That's kind of Ty Jerome's breakout game um, as, when he was a freshman or first year, as people mm-hmm. at UVA say. Um, that's going to be a great game. What two great programs, two great coaches. It, it's really neat. And also two teams that kind of are big on developing more of the, not necessarily the top 20 guys, but developing their programs. And we each have our own development system. So it's going to be really interesting. I, absolutely. I, I will be in attendance for that one for sure. You better um, be. <laughs> um, you know, who has been, and it might be tough to narrow this down to one or two people, but who have been the biggest helps in your career in terms of mentors um, to getting you at your today? Yeah, I think mentorship is huge for any, whatever industry you're in, whether you want to be a musician, whether you want to be an actor, whether you want to be whatever it is, businessman, anything, it's important to have mentors. And sometimes they may be in that same industry, but other times they might not be. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to have, like, I think Coach Bennett's been a mentor to me. Um, and over time, different mentors will come in in your way. Like, I met one, one guy last summer, Noah LaRoche, who's a phenomenal NBA skills trainer, and he's been a mentor to me in that regard, um, just kind of just talking different philosophies, exchanging ideas. So he's been great. And then also just having kind of someone within your family, someone in your inner circles, you know, of your closest friends, like, pushing you along the way and it's wild to think that whether it was our former manager class I mean from our little manager hub of four years and maybe even a couple years after I graduated we've got like probably four different people with MBA experience three different people actually wait four different people in the college game you know it's and all of a sudden you're kind of pushing each other along the way and then I think of our camp coaches that we've had um i think some if we go back two summers now we have like five of those former uva summer camp counselors right are in legitimate positions on d1 staffs it's wild to think about um just even seeing you you just end up networking and you end up pushing each other along the way but i think i mean coach has been a big mentor to me um ronnie wyman our um ad for basketball operations he's been a, a great mentor as well and then just kind of having your friends and family to push you along the way is huge. And you got to also be able to accept feedback. You also got to take criticism well. Um, I think that's something that it's important 
all criticism is helpful if you choose to let it be helpful, you know? Um, so I think, uh, I think that's huge. And, and that plays right into, you know, the, the question I'm about to ask is for our listeners who are interested in pursuing a career like yours, getting into basketball, what advice do you give them? Think outside the box, um, leave no stone unturned. And that literally means you have to start networking early. It's not necessarily what you know, it's who you know. Um, and that doesn't mean that oh, if you don't know anybody right now, you still have a chance to get into the industry, but it's, it's gonna take time, it's gonna take work. Build authentic relationships. Don't just reach out to someone and say, hey, do you have a job opening for me? But make the email or the kind of the informational interviews I think are big, but make that initial reach out, make it something personal, like relate yourself to them, whether you, you may be from the same town, you may have gone to the same college, different things like that, or have a common life experience that you, you guys know about, or check your network and then expand and grow and foster those relationships over time because ultimately that's going to help and then work your tail off i mean that's the name of the game you have to find a way to differentiate yourself i think film is the way in and it's going to always be the way in especially as technology continues to advance everybody needs to know every staff needs to have access and needs them to have someone who can break down film of some kind and then as different softwares like PlaySight and other companies kind of come along, being able to say you have experience with those and college is a great time to do it. You can do demos for different companies and different things like that. And if you put that on your resume, all of a sudden you're standing out well above and beyond. And we're all basketball junkies. Like do all video coordinators want to be video guys forever? Some yes, some no, but what they the video is their foot in and like that's what how they view it either way it was their foot in and if they want to stay with you guys great but a lot of people use the video room to kind of move out over time you just need to get your foot in the door and the best way of doing that is networking and reaching out and building real authentic relationships with people write handwritten notes you know and i think those or type notes depending on how messy your writing is my <laughs> writing is always kind of scribble at times but I think it's really important. Those are probably the things that you gotta do most is just work hard and meet a lot of people and build, try to really build authentic. Don't be uh, manipulative in any way or anything like that. Just hold them freely. I mean, and you are gonna hear back from way fewer people than you reach out to. That's just the name of the game. But so I'm making the most of all the times. Um, it's been fun to see some of our managers who go to summer league and just grind it out and they outlast like everybody else who's there and they're making so many connections and they're able to kind of get in their foot into the NBA. Um, any, anybody can do it. It just takes time. I think that's probably one of the most important things, but so networking. And then I'd say from a practical skill set standpoint, being able to use any of the major basketball video breakdown softwares and systems is huge. And then also now being able to, not just Photoshop. I think Photoshop's kind of a deep default answer. It's almost like that's everybody should have Photoshop now, but being able to do video premiere, being a wizard on um, all of Adobe's platforms, you know, final cut premiere, things like that. After effects, if you're able to master those, get your foot in the door with that and then show that you can work your way up from there. I think those are probably the, 
Photoshop and then the video, Adobe video stuff are huge to for college programs. That's what they're looking for. Yeah, that's, that's great advice for, you know, the up and coming basketball um, fanatic who wants to get involved with the game. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, yeah. Best shooter you've ever coached at Virginia. Ooh. Um, best shooter. And, we and best the numbers, right? Can we go to the numbers? <laughs> Who's the highest rank percentage? Uh, no, it's, it's been amazing to see, like, I'm, I can't probably pick one. I think Kyle Guy had a very natural story. That's just impressive. Just his, his shot was effortless, you know? But you come, you think of the year Malcolm Brogdon had, uh, I think, didn't he have a 40, 50, 90 year recently? Mm -hmm. um, you think Joe Harris, um, NBA three-point shooting champ. And then, I mean, DeAndre Hunter shot the cover off the ball for his two years at UVA that he played. And Ty Jerome was also a heck of a shooter. So, I mean, teach his own. It's kind of flavor of the month. Um, <laughs> yeah. Who had the nicest stroke and anything like that. But I've, it's, it's one of those guys. One of those guys? Yeah. What about, what about best dunker? Oh, best dunker. I think I've got my pick, but I want to hear, I want to hear who you think. Justin Anderson always had some explosive, explosive dunks. That was my pick, Justin yeah. Anderson. Yeah. The two best dunks, though. I've seen during my time at UVA was Mustafa Farrakhan against NC State. That's one of the forgotten dunks, one of the forgotten posters. Impressive dunk. And then uh, Darius Thompson against William and Mary. That one was that was was a vicious vicious poster. So those two are probably my two favorite dunks during my time at <laughs> Virginia. Well, I'll have to check those out on YouTube after this. Um, favorite all-time basketball player. I, for me, I got to go, not to give cop-out answers. Growing up, I was the biggest Shaquille O'Neal fan, so I felt like if I did, but over time, I don't really have that much of an affinity for his game, but I had to say his Shaq as a youngster. I was a diehard Orlando Magic fan growing up. Um, I don't necessarily have one favorite player growing. I just kind of like looking at players sure. that I just enjoy learning, so honestly – and it might be from a, a European bias a little bit, but like I love looking at Jokic and just how he plays and then or international bias, I should say. Um, and then Joe Ingles, there's there's my, my Aussie. I love how just crafty, how scrappy he is. So over time I kind of have different players I'd like to study. Luka Doncic obviously has been really fun to watch. I love playoff rondo. Playoff rondo is so cerebral, so competitive. Um, I mean, you can't go wrong with any of the any of those guys, but yeah. I don't know if I have a true favorite. If the emotional one, I'd probably say Shaq from growing up, but when it comes to studying, I just kind of like finding the, the different, the intriguing, the unorthodox guys. Uh, absolutely. What are you watching right now? And, and are there any other podcasts that you're listening to? So um, I was watching Sunderland till I die. I don't know if you guys have seen that on Netflix. That's a pretty good one. And then I'm a, I'm a soccer guy. That's honestly my, my favorite sport growing up was soccer. So anything soccer related, I'll watch. There's a, another show on Netflix called like the, the Beautiful Game that's been also kind of the history of soccer. Is while they actually kind of played more like one person dribbles and then everybody surround them and elbow and push people. Which I was like, well, I never I didn't know that back long, long time ago. So I've been watching that. I think everybody was in the Tiger King phase too. Um, so, 
what else? Podcast? Yeah. Do you listen to anything anything basketball related? Yeah, I listen to. Honestly, I'll I'll pull up my podcast list right here. Let's see. So uh, I listen to. Um, honestly, my favorite basketball ones, um, like basketball immersion, the basketball podcast. I like I like the stuff that they do. Um, and then a lot of stuff I listen to on podcasts. I listen to a lot of sermons. Um, I just, just to kind of get you, one of our former players used to always say, got to get your mind right. So that was always something I enjoyed um, listening to. But I listen to the Basketball Immersion podcast a lot. And honestly, what I've been trying to do more, and I'm t- I've been terrible at it. Probably growing up, I was awful at it. My mom can tell you that. And she'd be shocked to tell you. I'm trying to become more of a reader than um, true podcast. So I've been doing a lot of reading over the last two years. So that can a lot of throwing a couple of books um, in this little plug. The Playmaker's Advantage is a great one to read. And then I think everyone should read Talent Code and Culture Code. Probably start with Talent Code and then go Playmaker's Advantage. And then after that one, read Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Um, so I'm not super into podcasts. I listen yeah. just to kind of a couple, but more so the uh, been, been read, trying to read a lot. Yeah, me, me too. I've been trying to balance. You can, you know, you can get into watching too much TV and movies and video games. So I've been, been trying to read as well. Um, you a video game guy? I, uh, a lot of FIFA, a lot of, a lot of 2K. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> Uh-oh. Who's your squad in FIFA? I, uh, you know, I'm not very good, so I play with Barcelona. I, I got you know, to help myself out a little bit. All right, we'll have, we'll have a match after this podcast. <laughs> I definitely. Um, two more questions for you. One, yeah. toughest, you know, well, I should say, you guys have one of the, if not the toughest, um, home arena to play at. I think your record, you know, in the ACC over the last maybe eight years, you know, is better than anybody's. Um, but when you go on the road, what are, what is the toughest arena environment that you play in? Honestly, the one that I think is the loudest, so not including JPJ, obviously, otherwise Virginia fans will I punched me in the face every time they saw me. But honestly, um, I think that obviously because of its size, Cameron, the it's just so small, the noise resonates. But the one that stands out to me in terms of loud, in terms of ACC, Louisville gets rocking. And we've been forcing that arena a lot over the past few years. And I think some of it might even be the Purdue game was in that Louisville arena. So I might be a little biased because it was – it felt, it felt like a louder Louisville game. It just how badly those Purdue fans wanted it. But, man, Louisville's fans, they get that place rocking. It's, it's a wild atmosphere. I mean, there's 20,000 people in there, and everybody from bottom to the top is screaming their heads off. And fortunately, we've been able to get more wins there, um, except for uh, I think last year was the first one. But, but, yeah. And then last for our listeners who are interested in reaching out, how can they connect with you? Is there any social, social handles um, that uh, they can, they can hit you up on? Yeah, honestly, like they could, if they search me on Twitter or Instagram, they'd be able to hit, hit me up. Um, I'm not the biggest on social media. I should probably be more active, but if you want to email me or even text me, um, we'll, we'll put this to the test. Um, I'll leave my cell phone number is 703-424- four seven eight seven 
And my email is jac5au at virginia.edu. So feel free to reach out. Um, would love to get to know anybody who reaches out via text or phone call um, or email, whatever platform is best for you. Um, but if you also those social media plugs too, um, I'm just, I've, I'm more on my texting, calling, emailing grind than I am uh, on the social media stuff. Sure. Well, you know, it, it worked for you uh, in, in the note that you wrote to Rick Carlisle. Um, so, you know, I think if for our listeners who do want to reach out and get involved, that's a great um, avenue to do so. Yeah, hopefully uh, one of the listeners can become the next Brad Stevens and hire me in 20 there years. You go. I can be their janitor. <laughs> well, Johnny, I appreciate you joining us on The Edge again today. Johnny Carpenter, the Director of Player Personnel for the University of Virginia men's basketball team. Johnny, you're an awesome guest. We look forward to uh, keeping in touch and, and watching you guys on the court next season. Awesome. And thank you so much for having me. It was awesome. And I feel honored to be on this podcast. I look forward to talking with you soon, Eric. Thanks for listening to The Edge. You can catch us on social media at PlaySight on both Twitter and Instagram. That's at P-L-A-Y-S-I-G-H-T. You can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you get a chance, please subscribe and rate this podcast. Big thanks to our partners, the Sport Lifestyle Network. We'll catch you next time on The Edge.